Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles, though, if you have them, to Judges chapter 6. There'll be a couple of things that, that I want to read and kind of look at briefly, especially if there's a little bit of time, um, that I didn't include in your packet just because I wasn't quite sure if we would actually get to them or not. Um, there was some other things that I wanted to cover, and I wanted to get through the, book, through the book of Judges. There's going to be a couple of things, especially when we get to Jephthah, and I'll remind you of this when we get there, uh, and, and a couple of things at the end of the book of Judges that are really difficult. They're some of the more difficult passages, and I'm gonna, we're not going to touch too much on those right this moment. I'm going to deal with those when I come back from vacation. So next Wednesday, Dan Arsenault is going to be here. And he's going to teach on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. So he's going to give sort of an apologetic type. If you know Dan, he, he kind of is apologetic. That's his gear. So um, we're thankful for that. He's going to be here and going to teach on the uh, evidence of the resurrection, which I think is going to be encouraging. We're going to record it so I can listen to it later and, uh, and, and all of that. So be here for that. And if, I mean... If you do have friends that are lost that are maybe asking these questions, probably next week would be a good time to invite them. So, you know, just say, this is what we're going to be doing, and, you know, so come and listen. Um, So uh, that'll be next week. Then the week after that, I'm going to come back, and we're going to finish up the book of Judges, where we're going to talk about some of these really difficult things that happen in Judges, the sacrificing of a daughter, and uh, then this awful murder at the very end and some of these more difficult passages that are in here that we want to look at and see what's going on. And so we're going to deal more with those in a couple weeks. But saying that all that said, we're really just going to look at these three judges and what's happening in the story of these three judges as we wrap up the kind of the put a bow on at least uh, the story of judges as it were. And so over the last few weeks, if you'll remember the things that we've, we've talked about is that the book of Judges um, is really about these individual leaders that God raised up as a means of saving the nation of Israel. And so the nation of Israel goes through times where they are idolatrous. They just seek after other gods. They begin to worship other gods. And then what happens? Well, a conqueror comes in and really starts to step on their throat. And once the conqueror comes in, the thorn in the flesh, they cry out, hey, God, have you forgotten us? We're so sorry. We did all of this. And God graciously gives them a leader to rise up and to rid them of the thorn in the flesh, the persecution. And so these leaders come up and drive out the the people, and then they typically hang around and reign in the land for a number of years, and there's peace and prosperity while they reign in the land. So these are sort of, you could think of them like de facto little kings, but they're over small areas of Israel, not really over the nation as a whole, even though they try to uh, make them that. They're really just little chieftains, and they, they take care of their area, and they protect their people, and, and that kind of thing. Um, they're also not super awesome people. They're not like, these are not people that you want your kids to emulate, all right? Um, not to say that they didn't obey the Lord in some capacity. Not to say that the Lord didn't use them in some capacity. But when we say the Lord uh, hits straight licks with crooked sticks, these are exceptionally crooked sticks, okay? So uh, that's the way you can kind of see them. But the other part of the book of Judges that often goes unnoticed is that as the book goes on, the sticks get crookeder and crookeder, all right? They, they begin to be 
often just, sometimes just a straight circle is really what they end up, what they end up being. And so, um, so the last three, there's six judges that are uh, uh, major, we would consider major judges, and there's six relatively minor judges. So 12 altogether, but six that the author calls out and spends some time on their story. We talked about the first three major judges last week, and this week we're going to finish with the last three of the major judges. Most of the stories, I think, potentially outside of Jephthah, Jephthah's story, Gideon and Samson, you're probably going to be the most familiar with out of the book of Judges. And so we're going to talk about their story a little bit and see what happened with them and what it seems like the author is doing here. And we're going to watch this tailspin of Israel as it continues to just really work its way down the toilet bowl, so to speak. And so we, we pick up the story with Gideon in chapter 6. Gideon is a farmer. And Gideon is really slow to respond to God's call for him to lead Israel. And in fact, when Gideon is first called out, he is addressed by this character we see pop up time and time again in the Old Testament called the angel of the Lord. And so if you have your Bible, look there in, uh, in Judges chapter 6. Um, and actually in your verse packet, I've included it there as well. The angel of the Lord is sitting under a tree and he says, now the angel of the Lord there in verse 11 came and sat under the terebinth at, at Ophrah, not Oprah, Ophrah, um, which belonged to Joash, the Abirazrite, um, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now, here's the angel of the Lord, verse 12. Tell me sarcasm isn't in the Bible, all right? The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. All right, backstory here. The Midianites um, are every time the, his people, Gideon's people, plant during uh, sowing and harvesting time, or during harvest time, they come and attack them. And so here is Gideon. He's got some wheat, and he wants to hide it from the grasshopper. All right, he's the ant. He's hiding it from the grasshopper. And so he takes it into the wine press to thresh it out to make it look like he doesn't have wheat. And so he's not, instead of standing up and fighting the Midianites, he is hiding from them and trying to get by with a couple of morsels of bread. And that angel of the Lord appears to him and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Like calling him out basically right there <laughs> about how, I think, about how weak he is. And he protests this, obviously, and he is saying, well, you know, look what's happening. Has the Lord forgotten us? And, and Gideon's claim here in the, in the book is, uh, especially right at the beginning of his story, is one that pretty much all of Israel has at this point, is that they've heard stories from their past. They've heard stories about how God delivered them out of the hand of Pharaoh and parted the waters and he did all of these things, all these miraculous works. And here Gideon is, is taking uh, wheat and, and threshing it in a wine press because he's scared of the Midianites. And so his, his rebuttal to the angel of the Lord is, well, what do you expect me to do? Where is this God that we keep hearing about? How come he hasn't shown up? The irony here is, of course, who is he talking to? He's talking to the angel of the Lord. And I want you to see 
um, see something here. The angel of the Lord, look at verse 11. Uh, so the angel of the Lord calls him out. And if you've got your Bibles, look there in verse 13. Um, and Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are he, all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Who does it say in verse 14, turned to him and said? All right, uh, just a quick note. Remember, the angel of the Lord that shows up in the Old Testament is radically different from an angel of the Lord. Understand? An angel of the Lord is your ordinary, run-of-the-mill, everyday angel. Right? <laughs> we know that pretty sure. The angel of the Lord has some different properties about him. For one, the author will usually indicate something's different here about this scene. For one... He, he says in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said. He just cuts out the whole angel part. Let's just cut to the chase. We know who this really is. Um, the, in the book of Joshua, Joshua comes to this same, the angel of the Lord, or there, the commander of the armies of the Lord. And that commander, this same angel of the Lord, says to him, take off your shoes, for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Who does that remind you of? Mo, it reminds you of the story of Moses, right? And the, the, I asked the question poorly, I'm sorry. And, and what story is that with Moses? The burning bush. Who's in the burning bush? It's not God. Angel of the Lord. It is, yeah. Uh, technically, it is God. I was, we were talking about this this week. Technically, it is God, but let's be really precise. It says the angel of the Lord was there in the bush. So... This same angel of the Lord has some very, very different properties than an angel of the Lord. Who do we think this to be? Yeah, the pre-incarnate Christ, right? Uh, when we say Jesus, most of the time, we, I know what you mean, and that's, uh, we're all good. We're all on the same page there. But a lot of times when we say Jesus, that, that is the, the earthly, that's the man that he, the flesh he took on, right, was had poopy diapers and it had to be changed. Okay. Um, I don't know another way to say it, but you, you get the idea. Um, so this angel of the Lord shows up to Gideon and calls him out. And he ironically depicts him as this mighty man of valor. But what we see throughout his story is that it, it's completely different than that. He's not really a mighty man of valor. And this, his Calling sort of gives you that indicator that that's exactly not who he's going to be. Um, it takes three miracles for Gideon to be convinced that the Lord is actually on his side. The first one you see there in Genesis, uh, good grief, Judges 6, 36 to 40, and then it, there's another, that's two of them, and then another one is in 7, 9 through 11, and 13 to 15. It kind of wraps up there, but let's look at those passages. Uh, who will read those out loud for me? Real loud. Go ahead, Andrew. First one. Yeah. All right. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my I'm sorry, by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. 
When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just one more, um, once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. And 7, 9 to 11, somebody read those real loud for us. Go ahead and read the next one, 13 to 15. Okay, so Gideon is told early on, look, the Lord tells him, look, you've got to take the altar or the statue of Baal and the pole to Asherah, and you need to tear them down. Your dad set them up, but you need to tear them down. That's your first agenda. And Gideon is remarkably okay with that, and so he does it, but he does it at night because he's kind of terrified that people are going to see him do it. And when they, people wait, oh, and then he has to take one of the bulls that he uses to pull down the, the Asherah and the, and the, the um, statue of Baal and, and build an altar instead and sacrifice the bull on the altar to the Lord. And so he does all this, and the next morning the village is really pretty mad about it, and they're like, who, is, who did this? Well, somebody sells him out and tells him it, it, that, it, that it was him. And so they go to Gideon, and, they, and his dad kind of steps in the middle of them and, and stops them from killing Gideon, basically, right there, and says, well, then if, if, it, if it was Gideon that tore down the statue of Baal, and if Baal is really a god, then let Baal defend himself. Let him kill Baal, if that, if that, or let him kill Gideon, if that be the case. And if he leaves Gideon alone, then so be it. So his dad's kind of intervening for him. And uh, so Gideon earns this nickname, Jerubbaal, um, uh, and he, he, so he has this nickname, which means let Baal contend with him. Now, in the process of all of this, Gideon comes to the Lord and he says, look, uh, if you're going to deliver Israel by my hand, then I need some evidence that this is going to be the case. I need some, some proof, some hard and fast, who hasn't felt that way from time to time? Uh, we just want to, I just need to put out a blanket. I'm just, just call me crazy, Lord, but I'm just going to put out a blanket and I just need you to, I need it to be due on the blanket and, and, and not on the ground if that's possible. And that happens. Okay. Okay. Let's just call it a lucky shot. All right. Let's go to the next one. Let's see if, let's see how much you really want me to do this. Let's take, let's reverse it. Uh, put the dew on the ground and not on the blanket. And of course he does that too. 
Okay, well, just one more thing, all right? One last one, just to be really sure. And God tells him, look, if you're still worried about this, why don't you, as, you get, as you're getting prepared, go down to the, this village of Russians and listen to them. Listen to them talk, and you'll hear. We know the Russians, they call each other comrade. Um, don't, don't you know? No? Do, do I? No? <laughs> Come on. So bad. Uh, no, go down to the village, listen to them talking with each other, and, and, you'll, and you'll see. And so he goes, Gideon goes down, he's dropping some eaves, and he's listening to these two people talking with each other. And one of them says, I had this crazy dream last night. Well, that has to be Gideon, he says. Okay, so now Gideon has his proof. God has whittled down his army to nothing. He's called out this army from all over the place, and God has chopped it down to absolutely nothing. Why? Why did he do that? Exactly. God actually tells him this in verse 2 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So God is basically like, yeah, but if you win this battle, you're going to just say that you want it. So let's whittle it down till it's impossible odds. Let's make it really hard. So Gideon whittles it down. Let's make it a little harder. So he whittles it down even some more. Until it's 300 people, and he goes, oh, that'll work. All right. So, so now there's absolutely no way you can do it. And so uh, he goes into the battle, and he, uh, he goes through this kind of elaborate thing, and the enemy uh, takes off fleeing from before him. But then we get this really strange thing happens where Gideon seems to forget the whole point of that exercise of God whittling down the army to next to nothing because he calls up his reserves to finish the job. You see there in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 3, Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. This is the first whittling away uh, from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 people return and 10,000 remain. Then there's a whole other process of them drinking and things like that. He's whittling the army down. But then um, we get to verse 24. And he says, Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So here is Gideon pursuing the Midianites as they run and then he turns it over to everybody else and let's, let's get the armies back together again. Let's seize them. Well, Why? Well, the Lord whittled it down to 300 and he drove them out before you. Can't he finish the job? Seems like Gideon is waffling and we're going to see him waffle uh, big time here towards the end. Um, so after the great victory, um, there begins to be some rivaling, some quarreling amongst the tribes and clans. People are kind of, it turns out, sort of ticked off because uh, Gideon didn't call them into battle. So he comes up to Ephraim, and the Ephraimites say, look, uh, you didn't call us when you went into battle. Now, why would they want to go into battle? 
didn't seem like they were too happy about going into battle before with Joshua, but now all of a sudden they really want to go into battle. Why is that? Why do you think? Plunder. What's that? Plunder. Plunder. Oh, man, with battle comes money, right? Comes resources, comes all kinds of things. So, man, if you had just called us, we could have shared in some of the plunder. And uh, they're obviously pretty mad that Gideon didn't do that. And then as Gideon is going through, his army is a little bit weak and they're tired and they're hungry. And so he asked a couple of his brothers, hey, why don't you give some of my army bread? And they tell him, have you defeated the Midianites yet? Well, if you haven't, how do we know it's you that we should be afraid of? Maybe we'll have to turn around and give it to the rest of the group as you're trying to kill them. And so Gideon says, okay, uh, I, I put a marker. I remember that. He goes to the next tribe. They say the same thing to him. And so he goes on and on. And, and what do we see at the end? But Gideon comes back at the end of his defeat, at the end of defeating the tribes of Zeba and Zal, uh, Zalmunna. He comes back and he takes vengeance out on the people that denied his army bread. So we see that Gideon is not just content to follow the plan of the Lord, but he's sort of taking things into his own hands. Now, what do we say? The first three judges, we said last week, they weren't totally bad. They had a lot of really good things. They were kind of shady characters, maybe, but we didn't see a whole lot of bad things with them. In fact, God gave the land of Israel a lot of peace under their reign. They established the territory, they drove out the, the army, and God gave that area some rest from oppressors under their rule for a number of years, 40 years, 80 years. But now we see a little bit of just some shadiness to Gideon. He's not all bad, but he's kind of bad. There's some things that he's doing that's just not what you would typically want to see, and you certainly wouldn't want your kids to emulate, Okay is basically what I'm saying. Nobody's lining up to name their kid Gideon. Um, so uh, the end of Gideon's story is particularly strange because Gideon eventually succumbs to false worship that leads Israel astray. And you see this uh, toward the end of chapter 8. In fact, I've got the verse down there, chapter 8, verse 22 to 27. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Okay, this is good. Okay, good, good. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. Uh-oh. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in, uh, threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the uh, crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings, of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Missed it by half. 
just almost, but ends in idolatry, ends in creating an ephod, which is a garment priests wear uh, that has stones and things like this on it. Um, and instead of, he pushes back against being made king, but then he caves in to idolatry, giving them something to worship. And so it turns the whole nation of Israel upside down. And what do we see? But after Gideon's death, uh, you would think maybe that the people who had gone after idols would then, as they start uh, turn, as they turn to God and ask him for relief, that there would be what? What's the cycle? A judge come along and give them relief. But no. And this is the first time in the story, in the book of Judges, that we get an inkling something is going wrong here. They turn seemingly to God, and he, he, it's not the same pattern. In fact, Abimelech is given to them. Uh, did I have that one up there? Yeah. Abimelech, is, who is Gideon, one of Gideon's sons by a concubine, rises up and says, look, I'll lead you. And not only will I lead you, but he goes to Gideon's other sons and kills them all so that he would be the only son to lead. And does he lead them in righteousness and peace and truth and justice in the American way? No, he doesn't. In fact, he crushes them under his foot, becomes an oppressive leader or oppressive, you might say, dictator. And in spite of the good that Gideon may have done for Israel, his son becomes not a deliverer, but an oppressor, not a servant to the nation, but a murderer of Israelites and of his own family. And so we get this inkling, things are, things are not right here. Israel has gone after idols time and time again, and you kind of wonder, when is God going to end the cycle? Well, turns out right about here. This is where in the story it starts to turn incredibly south, and God starts to take his hand off a little bit and say, you want idols? This is where they'll end up getting you. And so he gives them Jephthah. But here's the strange part about Jephthah. The people, once again, turn to idolatry. They begin to, they resume worshiping Baal. This time they picked up whole new gods. They pick up gods of the Syrians, the Sidonians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistine gods. All of them, they begin to, begin to worship. And then the Ammonites come over and begin to oppress them. They start to fight with Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim, and Israel cries out to God. And so you see that in Judges uh, 10, 9, and 10. Who will read that for me? Should be probably on the back page of your of your verses. Who will read that out loud for us? All right. So the Ammonites come over. They Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim and all of Israel starts crying out to God to to help, but. The response is somewhat different. Look at 10:13. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Uh-oh. Therefore I will save you no more. Well, that's troubling to say the least. So God swears that he will not deliver them. But and this is one passage we're going to visit revisit in a couple of weeks, 
God seems to be mixed on it. He seems to not be resolute on his desire to just hand the, the nation over to uh, their, their pagan oppressors, as it were. And so uh, they, they are so completely uh, frustrated and, and are going after idols that God becomes frustrated and God decides he's going to give them over. And then Jephthah rises up and we get a little bit of different story with Jephthah's rise than we have with a lot of the other judges that rise up. Because the judges that come before him, there seems to be a call on them in some way where God gives to those judges a word like you need to go this direction and you need to do this particular thing. And with Jephthah, we don't quite get that. In fact, Jephthah Jephthah seems to be this political ruler and he comes in and he starts to kind of make deals and he starts to be kind of savvy. Well, I'll I'll do this for you. Why do you want me to come in and, and relieve you of oppressors? And the nation of Israel is now reaching out for somebody to come in and give them relief, some strong man that's going to come in and do the fighting for them because it seems as though God's not going to rise up and actually deliver them. But in spite of all that, God actually works through Jephthah and gives them victory over their enemies. And it seems apparent later on that he actually comes to Jephthah's aid and helps them. So here we have this picture of God as a loving father telling his children, it's not going to be that easy anymore. And giving them a little bit of tough love. It seems as though in this story they feel the struggle. They know that things are getting harder. That they're not just going to be able to do the same things over again and expect God to be really happy about it. And so he lets them struggle. And then, like a lot of loving fathers, comes to their aid again, delivering them from the hands of their enemies. And then Jephthah does something really stupid. God tells him that he's with him. The Spirit of God is, in fact, with him. And then he makes this rash vow. It's also redundant because God is with him as if he needed more, any more evidence to secure his victory. Look in uh, Judges 11, 30 to 31 and verse 34. Uh, who will read that for us out loud? Then 34. Then Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. Well, that was really stupid. So we need to talk about that in a couple weeks. What's going on there? And what happened? But I will say, as a, just a precursor to that, you do need to consider where we're at in the book of Judges and the context of what's going on 
and whether or not God is really happy with the people of Israel at this moment. What's the relationship like? Let's put it this way. If the nation of Israel and God were to have a Thanksgiving dinner, what would be the feeling in the room? Right? If you're thinking about it that way. Like, how tense is that relationship right now? And what are the judges like at this moment? One of the big problems I think that people have with this passage, it's a terrible passage, but one of the big problems that people have with it is we look at, judge, at the judges in the book of Judges as heroes. How many children's stories have you heard about the mighty Samson? Samson, though called out for his faith, like many of them are, can be a scoundrel. Not only a scoundrel, but in many ways, he's going to pattern Israel itself. So when we look at them as heroes, it becomes problematic when our heroes sacrifice their daughter. That's strange. Go after pagan women? That's really strange. All right. Uh, Samson. Samson is... Um, a shadow of what the judges are supposed to be. He's even a shadow of what the judges formerly were at the beginning of the book. We see some people that actually had seemingly some morals that really wanted to do what was right in God's eyes, and they progressively get worse as the nation continues to spiral out of control. Which, by the way, when a nation spirals out of control into idolatry, what tends to become of their leaders they tend to be idol worshipers too. So rarely do you get out of a nation of vile people who don't seek after the Lord, so rarely do you get someone who is righteous and truly seeking after God's own heart, right? So it stands to reason that as the nation of Israel continued to spiral out of control into idolatry, that the judges themselves also got progressively worse. And so we get to, to Samson here, and he's self-indulgent. He refuses to control his uh, sexual appetite. And uh, he has, Samson has a proclivity for foreign women. And he actually has become a metaphor for Israel itself. Now, Samson is interesting because he is what? What is, what is he? He's marked from birth. How? He's a Nazarite, which means what? Break it down for us in case we don't understand. What is a Nazarite? No beer, no bodies. They're what? No beer, no bodies. No alcohol, no dead bodies. No. Foreign women. Huh? No foreign women, right? Cutting hair, cutting hair. That's what it was. Sorry. There was no foreign women for everybody. No cutting of the hair. So, no cutting of the hair, no alcohol, no touching dead bodies. We're going to watch Samson violate every single one of those. So a lot of people look at the story of Samson and say, well, his strength was in his hair. That's not true. Over and over again in the story of Samson, we see the Spirit of the Lord come upon Samson and give him his strength. His strength was in the covenant that he had made with the Lord. That was the strength. The Lord provided him the strength. It wasn't a question of his hair. His hair was indicative of his vow that he had made, that he would not touch alcohol, that he would not touch dead bodies, and that he would not cut his hair. Well, the hair is the last thing to go. 
If they had been in reverse order, as soon as he touched a dead body, his strength would have gone. If they had been in a different order, as soon as he, what was the other one? Drank alcohol, uh, his strength would have gone, whatever it was. So his strength wasn't necessarily his hair. It was, it, was the, it was the vow that he had made. But just like Israel, Samson is set apart as a judge from the very beginning. Israel is also set apart by God. We've already seen that time and time again. God called them out. And yet what does Israel do as soon as they get into the land? They begin whoring after other gods. And God equates them to a prostitute throughout the, throughout the, uh, the, the Old Testament. Not only that, um, Samson then, uh, what did I put up? Set apart by God? He was set apart by God? Um, there was one other thing I was, I was going to say, and I totally forgot what it was, so I'm sure it was brilliant. Uh, <laughs> So like Israel, he'd been set apart by God from birth, and, but Samson wouldn't fulfill his potential at all. Uh, he would begin to intermarry with Canaanites. Oh, I remember what it was. Samson also doesn't completely drive out the enemies. They continue to hang around. Philistines are still there. So there's uh, problems all around with Samson, and his greatest moment comes in his death. Ironically, as Israel's leadership went, so went the nation. You might say, too, as the nation went, so went the leaders. It's both hand. The beauty of the relationship, I think, I know, and the difference of the relationship that we experience now is that there is no terse feelings over thanksgiving between us and God. There's none of those feelings because what we have in Christ is complete satisfaction of the wrath of God. That's the difference. So I think there's times where I definitely feel like Gideon just really want to test the Lord. And in spite of the many times that he affirms himself to me, I still kind of want to wander. There's times where I feel a lot like Jephthah, where I do some stupid things in spite of how faithful the Lord has been to me. And there are times where I'm a lot like Samson, where I fail to do the things that he has called me to do. And yet, he's still faithful. And yet still, he tells me to call him father. And yet still, he comes time and time again to affirm himself to me. Even though I don't deserve it. And that's because of Christ. We cannot forget what we have in Christ is unbelievably precious. Questions? Go ahead, Timothy. I need something else. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. This cycle of, uh, of, that we see in Judges is going to continue throughout the rest of the Old Testament, pretty much. Yeah. That's right. Questions? All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word and what it reminds us of. And I pray, Father, that as we think about this, may we be reminded yet again of your faithfulness to us. That as we see these judges, I pray that we not look at them with judgmental eyes, but look at them like they're a mirror into our own heart. And that were it not for the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit, guiding us, teaching us, reminding us of who Christ is, were it not for the gift of Christ himself dying for us, were it not for your daily provisions for us and your guaranteed faithfulness because of the blood of Christ, we would be squarely in that position. And so, Father, we pray that it would lead to our gratitude and our thanksgiving, our rejoicing over our status, but would it also please allow us to be confident in our sonship, confident in what you have made us to be, that we wouldn't seek after anything else as though we needed satisfaction from some other place, but that we would find complete and total satisfaction and joy by the fact that we are called child of the living God. Pray that would become our personality, our attitude, that it would fill our thoughts and our minds, that it would lead us to live lives of holiness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.